0: I'm gonna tell you my favorite Highland story that I have heard in the last few years right now, okay? Heard it the other day at a staff lunch. Back in the summer, our sixth graders got promoted to HYG, the youth group. So sixth through 12th grade. And so the sixth graders go from our children's ministry. They're, they're now big enough to be in there with the teenagers. And so our youth ministers, uh, Donnie, Hannah, and Ted wanted to make this really special for those sixth graders. So they came up with an event. It's the first time for this event. It's kind of a formal dinner. Uh, It's a summer night at a house of a family here at Highland out in the backyard. And um, so they all come kind of dressed up for this. The sixth graders come to this formal dinner. And then the other group that's there are our seniors, our high school seniors. So 12th graders and sixth graders together. And the the vision is to, to bring these kids together and for them to feel like they belong. So the seniors are glad to be there. You know, it's going to be a good food. They're going to hang out with these young kids. The sixth graders are terrified. They're terrified uh, because these are 12th graders, right? And you know every single one of those sixth graders, the 12th graders are just happy to be there. Every sixth grader is anxious and they want more than anything in the world for those seniors to think that they are cool right that they belong here that they're one of us okay so they're getting dinner ready and the kids are kind of hanging out in the backyard the 12th graders are kind of congregated over here with their buddies the sixth graders are kind of over here with their buddies and there's a pool in this backyard and it's not a pool party remember this is kind of a formal thing Uh, so nobody has swimsuits nobody has a change of clothes there's a pool and we don't know exactly how it happened But one of those sixth graders fell in the pool. Again, it's not a pool party. You know he doesn't have a swimsuit. Again, no change of clothes. The dinner hasn't even started yet, and he's drenched. He's soaking wet. His only hope for the night is that the seniors will think he's cool. And now he's soaking wet, and he's the only one. And so he comes up out of that water, and, you know, I wasn't there, but I, I've heard it was pretty obvious. Like, this is, this is a tragedy, right? This is serious for this guy. And I'll tell you, this sixth grader is one of my favorite kids. He's really sweet to my kids. I love this guy. This is a big deal. Within a few seconds, at the under, other end of the pool, two of our senior boys, Bryce Scripp and Wilson Baker, Bryce Scripp looks at Wilson Baker and he says, hey, dude, you want to jump in? And Wilson Baker says, yeah, I can do that. And the two of them with their clothes on jump in the pool too. Amen. Amen. Right? And they swim over to the young guy who's fallen in. And by this point, somebody's run and gotten him a towel and that towel is drenched wet and his eyes are just beaming with pride. And he reaches out that sopping wet towel to these two boys and offers them the towel. Okay, so immediately he has gone from embarrassed to he belongs here, right? All the other sixth graders wished they had fallen in the pool, right? Like suddenly he is worth enough to these seniors for them to get wet too, right? You know, think about it. Years from now, he's not going to remember this as the time he was embarrassed and excluded. He's going to remember this as the time he was brought in and found that he belonged. And the thing is, he had done nothing to deserve it. He probably didn't even know those senior guys. If he did, barely at all. He's a sixth grader. I promise you, he did not earn this. Like, there's no way he's earned it. And yet they did it. They did it. What is it about that story that's so good? Um, It's not just that they were nice to him. You know, nice to him would have been letting him borrow a shirt they had in their trunk or something. Like, they did something that came down where he wasn't actually elevated him. And in some ways changed him that night. What was that? Why is that so good? Okay, come with me to Acts chapter 20. Let me show you something here. I preached about Acts chapter 20 a few weeks ago because it's Paul's farewell address to some elders of the church in Ephesus who are his good friends. So we were doing our elder selection process. That process is ongoing. It was the nomination time. And so I talked about what he says to elders. But I want to show you something I didn't point out to you then that perhaps is even more important, and this is in verse 24. Remember, this is the last thing he's going to say, his last words to them. He says this, 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. What's the task? The task of testifying to the good news of God's Grace, grace. Now come down with me a few verses later, verse 32. He says it in kind of a different way. Let me show you this. Now I commit you, last thing he's gonna say to these guys, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. Look at this, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Man, pay attention here. Look at what he's saying. The good news about Jesus Christ. Paul says, I've given my whole life to that, to sharing that good news. And this is what makes it good. It's that it's about the grace of God the Father. That the whole story of Jesus, everything that Jesus has done for us is about one thing. It's about the grace of Jesus And that's what makes it good news. I mean, we live in an era of bad news, don't we? We crave good news. And Paul says what makes the news about Jesus good is that it reveals something to us about God that is unique to him that you don't find anywhere else or at least everywhere else. And that is that he, above all things, is grace. Which means that he gives us what we don't deserve. If then he comes back and he says, hey, just let me remind you. I'm going to commit you to something before I go. I'm never going to see you again. I'm going to commit you to something. I'm going to commit you to that God and to the word of his grace. I want you to give your whole life to believing in this, to trusting in this, to sharing this. What is it? Grace. Grace. That's what I want you to give your life to, he says. There's two words here you're going to see interchangeable, grace and mercy. Maybe you've heard those two and you're, you've kind of wondered what the distinction is. I like to think about those two, about two sides of the same coin. Mercy is that God doesn't give us what we do deserve. And then grace is that God gives us better than we deserve. Okay. Mercy is I deserve bad. Okay. Grace is he gives me good two sides of the same coin. And so Paul says, and this is what I want you to pay attention to, he's not just saying that the grace of Jesus is good, he's saying that that good news can build you up. It can change you. It can make you different than you were. So today I kind of want to understand that. I want to understand what is this thing we call grace, and how does it do that, build us up? Come with me to Ephesians chapter 2. If you got your Bible and you want to turn there, you can. If not, it's going to be on the screen. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 are some of the best verses that have ever been penned. Okay, And what Paul's going to do here is explain to us a little bit more fully than my coin analogy what grace is and what it does. Let me show you this. Come with me here to Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live When you followed the ways of this world. Now, look at that. Isn't that odd? You were dead when you used to live. Isn't that weird? Okay, so he's saying when you were back when you were alive, you were dead. Okay, which is not really how we tend to think about people who are alive. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, when you follow the ways of this world. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, two sides of the same coin, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions. Therefore, it's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, he might show, look at this, the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. If you're an underliner, underline this. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. Okay, again, if you go back to the first lines of that verse. Yeah, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Again, it is weird to call people who are alive dead. But to understand the good news or the gospel those are the same word the gospel of god's grace you have to see yourself clearly and it's really important for those of us who often think that we are pretty much good people to in fact preach to ourselves the truth of the good news of jesus which is that you're not a pretty good person It's that you're dead, you're dead, on your own, dead. Now, why would Paul use that word to describe people who are not dead? Have you ever thought about that, isn't that weird? Okay, let me ask you this question and then maybe you can understand it. Why does he use that word? What can a dead person do for themselves? Nothing, nothing. Nothing. As long as you're still alive, Presumably, you might can do something to change a bit of your circumstance. But the moment you're dead, you're, well, you're dead, right? And you can't do anything for yourself, okay, in that moment. Okay, so why is it that Paul uses that word to describe people who are caught up in transgressions and sins? It's because he's trying to capture what it's like for on your own, you're helpless. You can't do anything. You can't change your circumstances. You can't help yourself. You're dead, is what he says. And then what he says, the grace of Jesus does is it comes to people who are dead and cannot change their circumstance, and it makes them alive. It's what? Resurrection. That's what the grace of Jesus does to us. It makes those of us who are dead, wrapped up in our burial clothes, laid in the tomb, unable to change our circumstance. It makes those people Alive. It makes him alive. Okay, and then he uses this other metaphor. He says, what Jesus actually reveals to us is this incomparable, what he calls the incomparable riches of the grace of the Father. Okay, so how many of you have seen Aladdin or um, Indiana Jones or The Hobbit? Um, one of those scenes where some guys stumble into a room full of treasure, okay? Treasure as far as you can see, mountains and mountains of treasure, okay? So what Paul says the grace of the Father is like is that Jesus comes and he cracks open the Father's chest and he pulls back the door and inside of the Father, what we see are just mountains and mountains of treasure and you pick up the coin and it's, it's grace, right? That's what it is. It's the gift that God wants to give you, even though you don't deserve it, even though you haven't earned it. And so the father just says, well, come on in. You want some of this? Have as much as you want. Fill your pockets. Here's a bag. You know, take all you can take. It was like we were doing a trunk or treat. You want one Jolly Ranger? How about eight? You know, it's like your parents will love it. Um, More than you can handle, just giving you more and more grace, more and more goodness, more and more forgiveness than you could deserve. That's the heart of the Father, and and that's what we see in Jesus. And here's the thing. This is what makes it grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't earn it. And that troubles us if we really think about it. Um, Michael Sandel's written this book called The Tyranny of Merit. The Tyranny of Merit. Of merit. What he means by that is we we live in a world where if you want something, you have to earn it, you have to merit it. And what you don't have, you don't have because, frankly, you haven't worked hard enough and you haven't earned it. And so we live in a world where we are led to believe there is nothing free, nothing free. Maybe you've heard this, there's always a catch. If it looks too good to be true, it probably is. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Actually, in Memphis, most kids get to eat free, and I'm so thankful for that. You know how that happens? Our tax dollars pay for it. You know, it's not actually a free lunch. We're, we're all paying for that. And praise God that we do pay for lunch for those kids. But we are led to believe there is nothing free in this world And the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is, look at this, Romans 11. At the present time, there is a remnant who have been chosen by one thing, grace. And if by grace, if out of the abundant favor of the Father and for no other reason, if by grace, then it cannot be based on works, on merit, on earning it. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Indeed. Let me show you something here. I'm going to put this up on the screen, these two visuals, one after the other. We live in a world where everything we do, whether that's the relationship of a sixth grader with a senior, whether that's the relationship of an employee with their boss, or In every other religion in the world, whether that's the relationship between humans and the gods or God, it works this way. You offer your performance to the one who is above you, and they reward you for what you've done. Every other faith in the world, nearly every dimension or component or environment in your life works this way, doesn't it? Perform well enough, receive reward. The gospel is the exact opposite. It looks like this. The father just chooses to offer grace to the people he's made who have turned against him in sin. He just chooses to give his son Jesus so we might be reconciled to him in grace. And he offers that grace down to us and our lives just become a response of gratitude. It's just thankfulness for what he's done for us that we didn't earn. If you could work for it, grace wouldn't be grace. That's not how it looks. It just comes from him. We don't get to choose. It just comes from him. And that's how we respond in gratitude. There's this, this training tool for Christians developed hundreds of years ago. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. And the, the catechism um, is structured in three parts. The first two are who God is, what God has done. The third part is what we do, who God is, what God has done, what we do. So most of it is about God and a little bit's about us. You know what they call that last chapter, what we do? They just call it gratitude. And the whole of the Christian life, our ethics, our morals, our values, the way we give, sacrifice, serve, all that, just gratitude for what Christ has done. Karl Bart, New Testament guy, he said, Um, grace follows, sorry, gratitude follows grace like thunder follows lightning. Gratitude follows grace like thunder follows lightning. If you can find one, you should expect the other. I was listening to a podcast with a preacher that I admire a lot, and he was talking about his his life and ministry. He's being asked, he's not just a, a guy talking about how great he is, he's being asked this question by interviewers. And every time he's asked a question about how great something has gone in his life or ministry, he'll, he'll deflect it and say, well, really, that wasn't me. I was kind of a, you know, a mess up. I was just making a mess of things the whole time. And I had these wonderful people around me and they'd say, well, yeah, Well, tell us more. And he's like, well, really, it was mostly actually just Jesus because I didn't know what I was talking about or what I was doing. They said, well, tell us about your family. They're so faithful and good. And he'd say, yeah, I was not a really great dad, but the I guess just Jesus was so gracious to me. He said, tell us about your wife. She's amazing, just faithful. And he's like, yeah, that wasn't me either. That was Jesus. And finally, he just stops and he says, listen, guys, I'm a rich man for no reason. I'm a rich man for no reason. And I had to stop the podcast and write that down. And if you're a note taker and maybe you're writing something out in your Bible, either beside Ephesians 2 or here beside Acts 20, you might just write that down. I'm a rich man or woman for no reason. It's not talking about your material wealth, although if you've got material wealth, we believe that comes from the Lord. It's talking about the rich favor of his grace given to us who don't deserve it, given to us for no reason except he wanted to. I mean, isn't that wild? Isn't that crazy? I'm a rich man for no reason. But like I said, that's grace. That's the favor of God it makes us rich when we don't deserve it, okay. How does that change us, though? I want to think with you about that. <clears throat> this is actually one of the bigger debates in the history of the church, is what, what actually does grace do to us? Um, it seems like a nice thing for Jesus to forgive us. Does that actually change us? <clears throat> so let me take you back to a church fight. Um, it wasn't over like the carpet or the paint colors or anything like that. It's a little more substantive. It was between two guys named Pelagius and Augustine. And Pelagius said the grace of Jesus is that he forgives us. But then all the grace of Jesus or the grace of the Father that we experience through Jesus, all that it does for us after forgiving us is it points us to the example of Jesus. And so grace is the thing that gives us a mark that we down here shoot for. Gives us a perfect standard to aim for. So grace is that he forgives us, and then grace is that he gives us a standard that we down here are supposed to meet. And Augustine, he didn't like that. I also don't think he liked Pelagius. But he said, he said, and Augustine says, well, let's look at what Paul says. He says, let's go to 2 Corinthians. He says this, Paul talked about a thorn in the flesh, a thing he couldn't shake. The thing that as hard as he tried to get rid of it, this was a problem that Paul couldn't shake. So you might think about it like this. If Paul's aiming to be like Jesus, he keeps hitting this ceiling, okay? He, He keeps bumping up and he can't get past it. As hard as he tries, as much effort as he puts in there, he's not getting to the standard. And Pelagius would say, work harder if you want to reach the grace of Jesus. And Augustine's like, no, that's not how it works. So look at this. This is 2 Corinthians 12, 7. This is Paul. Therefore, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, that ceiling, that thorn in the flesh. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So look at that. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfect in weakness. You see the parallel there? My grace, my power. He's saying for Paul, the grace of Jesus is the power of Jesus that helps weak sinners be strong. The grace of Jesus is actually the, the, same, the thing that motivates God the Father to give Jesus for us is the same power that comes to work in us to raise our level where we could not otherwise get. That's what the grace does. <clears throat> so let me look with you here. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Look what Paul says about himself. Look, For I am the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. It changed me. made me different. A couple of years ago, there was a young man who came here to Highland. And when he came, he was caught up in all kinds of addiction. Uh, Substance abuse of various kinds. And also pornographic addiction and some addictions that kind of went along with that. And um, his life was a mess. It was a mess. It was a real mess. And I remember he pulled up in my driveway late one night. He's a young single guy, so he's on a different schedule than me, the young dad. And uh, he calls me. He's like, Eric, I'm outside. I need to talk to you. I'm like, okay. And uh, I go out there and sit in the car, and he's just made one of the worst mistakes of his life. And we've been talking for a while trying to help overcome this. And uh, I'll never forget what he said. He said, I feel dead. What he meant was, everything I do, it's like it's doing nothing. It's not changing it. Can anybody relate to that? Can anybody relate to that? Okay. What I would say is, over the next few years, not instantly, over the next few years, I mean, he worked a process. He did an AA program and an SA program, you know, got a mentor, had mentors here. In fact, he lived with a really godly family here for a time that would just pour into him every night. But the main thing that happened to him was that increasingly he realized he was dead and so appealed to the one who can make him alive. And it wasn't overnight, but in a little bit of time and in a lot of pain, that grace radically transformed him. You know, he's now married. He has a kid. uh, He's living for the Lord. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And if you asked him what changed him, he would say, well, that's, that's easy. It was Jesus. It wasn't me. It was Jesus. It hurt, but he did it. He did it. Okay, that's the grace of Jesus. Um, We need it. We need it. But when we experience the gracious forgiveness of Jesus, he also begins to do in us what we may not be ready for, but what we also most need. And without him, without that grace, we are dead. We're dead. Uh, let, me, let me end with a story that makes more sense of this than I have, and it's from my favorite book, maybe ever. It's a little book called "The Voyage of the Don Treader" by a guy named C.S. Lewis. I've, I've talked about him before a time or two. There's this boy named Eustace, and Eustace is the worst. He's the worst. Uh, Nobody likes him because he's ugly to everybody around him. He whines and complains all the time. And at one point in the book, he, through a bit of magic, becomes on the outside who he is on the inside. He turns into a dragon breathing fire. And um, suddenly when he sees himself as he actually is on the inside, he hates it. He hates it. In fact, he tries to fly back to his friends and they don't want anything to do with him. He's a dragon, he's a dragon. And so he's just alone and he's despondent and he's trying to tear the scales off of himself and he can't and he's just caught up in this dragon body. And so he says this, he says, I looked up and I saw the very last thing I expected, a huge lion coming slowly towards me. And it came nearer and nearer and I was terribly afraid of it. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand that. Well, it came up close to me, and it looked straight into my eyes. And I shut my eyes tight, but that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. As the lion is Aslan, and Aslan takes Eustace, this dragon, and they go to the top of this mountain, this big old dragon walking behind this lion. And the top of the mountain is this kind of garden. In the middle of the garden is this small pool of fresh water. And Aslan says, he says, if, if you want to be changed, just, just get in the pool. And uh, he tries to get in the pool, but he's this big old dragon. So he, he actually won't even fit in the pool. And Aslan says, oh, yeah, you're going to have to take that off. And so look at this. He says, I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and I saw that they were actually all still there. And they were all still hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had ever been before. And then the lion said, you're going to have to let me do that. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back and I let him do it. And the very first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I have ever felt. And the only thing that may be able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling that stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab off of a sore place, it hurts like Billy-O, but it's such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled that beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done myself the other three times, only those times it had not hurt. hurt. But now there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been before. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I'd had been. And then he caught hold of me and I didn't like that very much for I was tender underneath now and I had no skin on and he threw me into the water and it smarted like anything but only for a moment and after that it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone. And then I saw why I'd been turned into a boy again. And Lewis says, to be very strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. And there were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But the cure had begun. The cure had begun. That is the grace of Christ. It is something that comes to us and not only forgives us that we are such dragons, but tears away what doesn't belong and makes us who He wants us to be. And unless He does it, we won't be that person. Let me pray over us. God, we are desperate for Your grace in our lives. Each of us here, myself included come with hurts and brokenness, come covered, God, in scales that we have tried ourselves to tear away. We need more than we need anything in the world, God, for you to heal us, for you to forgive us, for God, for you to claim us as your own. We know we do not deserve it, and so we savor, God, what is such good news that you are gracious to us and we see that in your son jesus our king and savior your son we pray in his name amen